Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm your host, Richie Plush, and I'm excited because this week I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Lindsay Sterling. We had a great conversation about uh, teens in particular. And one thing I wanna call to your attention is we really uh, used a person with autism and autistic person sort of interchangeably. And one of the things I want you to know from our perspective is we're doing the best we can to be as respectful to everyone in the conversation. Um, but I know that this is very much an individualized preference and some people prefer one versus the other. Um, we're doing the best we can, and so hopefully you understand that as we kind of go in through this, go into this uh, this conversation. Dr. Sterling is a clinical psychologist specializing in autism spectrum disorder and coexisting conditions, including anxiety and depression. Her academic positions have included uh, faculty at UCLA Department of Psychiatry, staff psychologist at the UCLA Child and Adult Neurodevelopmental Clinic, and a tenure track professor at the Department of Psychology at Cal State University of Long Beach. She also continues to work with individuals in her uh, and families in her private practice in Southern California. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lindsay Sterling. Dr. Sterling, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm so curious, um, how did you get interested in treating uh, individuals with autism and comorbid and co-occurring diagnoses? Yeah, well, I went to graduate school um, at the University of Washington specifically for the reason to study autism. So working in the autism center there with Dr. Geraldine Dawson, who is a, a wonderful mentor in the field. And um, I had a particular, I had a background in psychobiology and, and um, I guess you could say um, you know, core sciences. And so a lot of my work in the beginning of graduate school was in physiology and understanding physiological mechanisms, um, underlying face processing, social processing, um, and autism. And in my second year of graduate school, I had to interview the adults in my face processing study before we did eye tracking with them. And we were looking at something unrelated to comorbidity. We were trying to understand how autistic adults process faces. So looking at faces, um, pictures of their mother versus strangers and how, which parts of the face that they looked at. So it was an eye tracking study. And in doing so, we were screening out individuals who had significant psychopathology. So I would do these psychiatric history interviews sort of to make sure that something like psychosis or schizophrenia or significant psychopathology wasn't like the main condition um, in these individuals. And while I was doing these interviews, it was like striking to me. So this was in 2005, probably 2004 or five. Um, almost every single one of them endure some sort of depression. So um, symptoms of depression, I, and I wasn't necessarily doing a diagnostic interview, but just through the screening, suicidality was coming up, these significant symptoms. And so I went to my advisor, to Dr. Dawson, and I was like, this is a big deal. This is something that we're seeing in all of these 
adults. And at first she was like, oh, this isn't really what the field is looking at right now. This isn't a big deal. And I think she went to a conference and called me back into her office several weeks later. And she's like, okay, people are starting to, to notice this too. Let's quickly get this data together and make sense of it and write a paper. And so that's what we did. And we published one of the, it wasn't the first, there was some work on it, but it was one of the first papers to really try to understand um, the characteristics associated with depression among autistic adults. And really the purpose of it was to bring attention to it. It wasn't to have it all figured out in this paper. Um, but that's where I sort of started diving in um, and trying to understand depression and then later anxiety in this population. And then you've shifted your career to be almost not exclusively in that regard, but really focusing in that in in those comorbid diagnoses, right? I mean, yeah, that's there been was a bulk of what you've done in your practice. Yeah, there was such a need for it. So then later in graduate school, sticking with physiology, um, I got grant funding and did different projects trying to understand the physiology of anxiety in autistic youth and teens, and trying to understand basically there was so much confusion. Is this autism? Is this anxiety? Like when we see um, certain behaviors. And so my aim was to try to understand, well, if we can show that the physiological mechanisms in this population are the same physiological mechanisms that we see in anxious populations, then it sort of validates that anxiety is really existing. So things like increased heart rate um, or skin conductance, like sweaty palms for lack of a better right, word. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it shifted in that direction and sort of, I stuck with it, I think partly because of the need. There were so few people studying this at the time. And then um, even in my clinical work, when I went on internship and postdoc at UCLA, I would get those referrals. People would start referring um, these teenagers to me and adults as well. And so it became my niche, I guess you could say, moving right. forward. It's amazing how that, like, the experiences you've had, and we've had Dr. Dawson on the show before, and again, just a wealth of knowledge, but yeah. just the, how, like, how, how pivotal that, that early, uh, that early learning was for you, um, you know, and how it shaped your career in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I was very fortunate to have a mentor like that, and to be in a lab where we had that um, latitude to be able to say, oh my gosh, this looks really interesting. Let's study this. And I feel really grateful for that because um, Dr. Dawson created such an atmosphere, had the funding, had the resources so that as graduate students, we had the opportunity to pursue things that we were intellectually curious about. So yeah, I feel very grateful that I, I was able to do that. In graduate so, so in your years of in your years of practice, are you noticing trends? Are there trends happening with, you know, relation to gender or age or what's going on with, you know, um, I feel like this is increasing. Is there is there any data that we can pull from that or any da data we should know about? Yeah, I mean, if you look at typically developing kids, right, you see an increase in anxiety and depression as they get older. So it's no surprise that we see that in autism. I mean, just having a diagnosis of autism doesn't make you immune to having a diagnosis of something else. I wish it did, right? But um, it doesn't. And so those same developmental trajectories and hormones and, um, and social pressures 
probably are even magnified in autism. So often what I've seen clinically is the anxiety manifests itself a little bit younger than we see the depression. So the anxiety around, you know, seven, eight, nine, um, yeah. oftentimes the depression seems to come online after repeated experiences, negative experiences, socially feeling isolated as the self-awareness grows through intervention and support and all of these wonderful things, sometimes with that comes the awareness that there are differences that the person is left out. Um, and so I tend to see the depression a little bit later, more like puberty or after puberty. I get um, a ton of referrals for like 12 year old boys for some reason. Um, and then I get a lot of self referrals from young women um, who feel like their diagnosis was missed over the years. Um, and then, um, yeah, I would say over the years, my practice is growing in terms of females. It used to yeah. be so many males, probably because of our biases about autism. And that's something that's certainly changing. More and more women are self-referring to my practice. That's great that they're able to advocate for themselves in that way. I think that's something that so many people within the autism community are encouraging for individuals like advocate for yourself tell people what you need tell people what you're wanting tell people what you're looking for and this sounds like just an expansion of that exactly yeah and it, and you're right it, it's so great that they're doing that because sometimes it's after a history of being told that they're fine right the things that they're talking about are really not that bad because they're masking their symptoms or camouflaging or they have found strategies to be able to sort of cover up what's so hard and being told over and over again but you're so smart but you're so this but you're so that you're fine and so advocating for themselves is a really big deal it can be really hard because it's often in the face of getting this messaging that they're fine, that they're overreacting, that things are not that hard. It's so interesting to like to to wear, you know, to wear the hat of, of an autistic individual and to be able to say you're getting these mixed messages, right? You're trying to be social and it's not working, but you have friends and family telling you you're going to be fine. I imagine that on its own is going to lead like that mixed messaging from people um, yeah. is going to lead to anxiety and, and confusion. Anxiety, confusion, and sometimes isolation and depression because feeling like they're not heard, they're not validated, they're not understood. And so, um, and it's tricky when people, you know, young women come for, um, they want validation that autism fits for them. And oftentimes I'm fortunate enough to be able to interview what we call a collateral, like a parent. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I'm finding, and this is really sort of newer in my practice, I'm finding more and more that parents of women, especially, are um, not endorsing a lot of problems in development. And it's it's been tricky to decipher whether that's because those symptoms weren't there or they weren't showing. Or as I often tell my clients, this is difficult for parents, right? Because being interviewed, right. I'm interviewing the parent of a 25 year old about their child's development. Not only is it tricky in terms of their memory of these details, but there are also some psychological things going on here. It's, it's hard for parents to acknowledge, oh, maybe there was something going on. And, and there's this subtle implication that, oh, maybe I missed it. 
um, right? Because here we are at 25, their child's 25 and we're interviewing them. And so, um, and there's no blame associated there. This is hard to detect and, and teachers are not trained to notice this in an right. eight-year-old girl, right? Um, but it, it is really tricky to navigate that within the family um, and all that goes with that. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even considered that, but you're right. You know, the the underlying guilt and anxiety and stress and all of those feelings of, man, I should have done more for my son or daughter or, you know, wow, I, I the signs were all there. Why couldn't I see it at the time? And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to look backwards in some ways, but it's also hard because then there's that sense of I could have done something else or I should have done something else. Right, right. And what does this mean in terms of how I parented and what I provided for my child? And the truth is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't there, it wasn't on our radar. It should have been, right. but we weren't often looking for young girls. We were using the criteria that we use for boys and girls develop differently. And um, so it, there's no blame associated with it, but as a parent, of course, I can understand why parents would feel that, right? Would, would feel vulnerable in that way in these interviews. Um, so it is a tricky one to navigate. And there's a lot of me balancing that with listening to the client about their internal experiences that aren't always visible to other people. Right, right. You know, as you're as you're describing this to me, I'm I'm wondering, um, it's not just skills that interfere interfere with social interactions, right? It's also emotions and these underlying emotional um, abilities. Is that would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think that that's something that's come to light clinically. You know, I have mm -hmm. a. Uh, a long history of working, no, a long history, but a history of working in academia and research. And so um, once I started working more clinically and we talked so much about social skills, social skills are so important. It's such a core aspect of intervention for autism. But when I am working with older kids, with teenagers, I get a lot of yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. I've heard this before, right? I've been in a social skills group where people have given me these tips. But I, I approach a group and I start thinking to myself, well, they're not going to want to talk to me. Well, I'm too freaked out. This isn't going to go well. Why should I bother trying? Um, and it started to become so apparent that it, there was so much. I mean, it's obvious when, when we point it out now, right? right that it right. started to become so apparent that it was this anxiety, the emotion dysregulation, the unhelpful thoughts you know, as we call it in cognitive behavioral therapy, that were really interfering with some of those successful social encounters. It's uh, yeah, I, I've never I've never thought of it that way, right? I mean, I in my in my normal practice, I work with some teenagers who are, you know, experiencing some of these exact exact things, and I I haven't really thought of it. Of I know what I'm supposed to do, but just putting one foot in front of the other to walk up to and approach somebody. I mean, that's that's hard for teens anyway exactly. right and throw in anxiety and, and depression and a diagnosis of autism or whatever else it may be and I a history of here yeah and a history yeah. of quote-unquote failed attempts right of right. getting negative feedback from peers when maybe they didn't have the skills and they hadn't practiced um and so and you're right for anyone that's hard you know it's very you're very vulnerable when you approach a group when you reach out and try to make plans you're it's very risky and so you have to be emotionally set up to be able to handle that because there's no guarantee that it's going to go well. And we have to be honest about that too, 
right? That right. it is a risk. We're not going to guarantee that this is successful, but there's zero success rate if you don't try. And so right. if this is what you want and you're motivated to do it, then that means practicing and, and being able to manage the emotions around it. Yeah, right. They, they could do everything absolutely correct and it still doesn't go well. I mean, that's happened to we all could, of us. Yeah, yeah, we've all been that. We've all been there. Right. Um, so would you say in your research and in your practice, would you say that, you know, as, as you know, autistic people get older, that it's less about the symptoms of autism that are inhibiting them and more about the symptoms of anxiety and depression? Usually, yeah. I, I do get clients every once in a while, like in their 20s, who, you know, have this, like, increasing self-awareness of, oh my gosh, I've been sort of denying this autism piece and now I need to address it. I've been rejecting that even though I've been assessed for it and now I'm ready to address these social issues. So I do have a handful of clients sort of in that phase, but for the more sort of um, common I guess common. I see so many late diagnoses. I get so many teenagers and adults. It's not really common for me, but I guess for the field, the more common like diagnosed at age three, four, five, right. And um, going through intervention. Yeah. I would say that by the time they're older children or teens, young adults, a lot of them would say it's these other things that are interfering. It's the anxiety, it's the depression, it's the loneliness, um, so the, the aspects that are associated with the core aspects of autism. Right. I want to, I want to switch a little bit and talk about interventions and, mm -hmm. and, and I want to, and I want to hear more about, um, your book, but first, before we get there, what are some of the interventions that, that people can be using to help in treating their depression and anxiety for these, um, individuals with autism? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can't take credit for how these interventions developed, but I was fortunate enough to get to work with people who did. So when I was at UCLA um, on my postdoc, I worked with, worked with Dr. Liz Logason. I worked um, actually a lot with Dr. Jeffrey Wood, who developed um, really modified cognitive behavioral strategies for anxiety in youth with autism or autistic youth. And so, um, you know, and he has some other colleagues who have really worked on that too. And so I learned a lot from him and really um, he was able to take some of the core aspects of CBT, of cognitive behavioral therapy and modify it for autistic youth. And what he found in his research is that by targeting things like anxiety, we see core symptoms of autism improve also, right? They're totally linked together. It's not like a piecemeal, well, I'm gonna target a social skill this week and anxiety the next week. We see that they're intertwined. Um, and so really, yeah, I would say it's individualized when I work with a client, I have to meet them where they're at in terms of where they're at with their um, sophistication emotionally and identifying emotions in themselves and others, um, where they're at with their social skills. But really it's an integration of working on social skills with the cognitive behavioral approach to manage emotions along the way. That's great. That's great. What a great combination. I that's, that's, it's so key. I think, you know, we talk about like teaching splinter skills and we talk about some of those things with regards to, you know, ABA and other practices that, that right. go on and all have how we support individuals. But the fact that you can combine them and really have collateral gains, I think that sounds really pivotal for a lot of individuals. I hope so. It's the hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
yeah. Right. Recently, you wrote the Social Survival Guide for Teens on the Autism Spectrum, How to Make Friends and Navigate Your Emotions. Can you tell us more about the book and how you've incorporated some of what you've learned from your practice? Sure. So this was a, a fun project for me, and it was maybe a little unusual because the, the publishers came to me and asked me to write the book. So I can't take credit for this, um, this idea in a way. Um, and, but when they came to me and, and said, um, you know, it, the publishers, the way they explained it is they do research um, to see what type of book is missing out there. What hole do we need to fulfill? What are people asking for? And there's, there are a lot of books on social skills. And so the goal wasn't to reinvent the wheel. What they were finding is that people wanted, they wanted the information accessible. So they didn't, the research, I love the research. That was actually a little bit hard for me to let go of and to not make this a research <laughs> and not have all of these citations. And for them, they, you know, they were like, no, people just want to be able to open a book and get some tips, right? And it's grounded in research. The tips come from what we know from research and clinical work, but they want something that's accessible. And I really appreciated that because I think that working clinically, we do see that, right? The theory is great, but they want the tips at their fingertips. And the other piece of it that really appealed to me, and, and I think this sort of came more in collaboration and talking to the publishers about what I could offer was this emotional piece, right? So knowing that there are social skills books out there, which are wonderful, but how can we integrate that emotional piece that we just talked about that seems to be interfering with a lot of um, the social skills? And then the third part of it that I really loved about, you know, their vision of the book was that this wasn't a message that here, you have to know social skills. You have to be social. So here's a book on how to do it. Really, the book is everyone's different in terms of how social they want to be. There is a continuum in terms of how social people are comfortable being, how much socialization we need, how many friends we need. So we don't want to impose that on you. This is up to you. But nice. if you decide that you want that, if you want skills to initiate a friendship, to pursue a friendship, here are some guides and tips for you to do that. So really that there is a message of empowerment, that it's okay mm -hmm. to be however you want to be, but yeah. if you want some tips, here you go. And I really thought that that was um, unique in a way, that that was yeah. the messaging yeah. of this book. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, that's very unique. I mean, I think a lot of people have this in their minds, this image of what it is to be social, and it's everyone at a lunch table with 20 friends around them, and they're all laughing and having a great time, and you know, and I am the center of attention. And that certainly can be the case for some people, but it also isn't for a lot of people. And you know, and you mentioned the spectrum, you know, but like the spectrum of introvert to extrovert on its own exactly. is yeah. a spectrum. And how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate that? even day-to-day -day basis. There are days where I feel like, man, I want to be around all my friends and days where I'm like, yeah, I just want to be by myself or I just want to do this. It doesn't mean I'm not social. It just means in that moment I'm not. Or Right. And we all need to recharge in different ways. And some people recharge right. by having alone time. And that doesn't mean they're lonely, right? So right. parents might perceive that, that their child is lonely because they want alone time. But some of us, I talk to kids and teens about our laptop needing to be plugged into the wall to recharge, right? Like we all need different ways to recharge. 
But you have a great point about that kid at the lunch table, right? Who's getting all the attention, who has 20 friends. That's the one that we see because of the nature of that person, right? The fact that they're out there and they're attracting all these people around them. And that is great. There are people like that. But you're right that a lot of people probably more often are not comfortable with that. And that we probably don't need 20 quote unquote close friends at school. We need a couple, right? Like two is better than one because if your one friend is absent, (laughs) you want to back up. Um, but, But you really don't need to be best friends with the most popular person. It's more about finding your fit and the person or the people that you're comfortable with. Right, right. That's such an empowering statement too, finding your fit. And I think that's something that, you know, parents, we, we, I, I am guilty of this also. It's like, where did my, where, where is my son or daughter's fit? Is it in, you know, is it sports? Is it, you know, academics? Is it basketball? Is it gymnastics? You know, where is that? And so it's trying to expose them to as many things as I can mm-hmm. so we can find that right fit and some stick and some don't. And, right. and, but for the individual to be empowered to say, I don't like this, or I do like this. I want more. Um, that on its own is, is powerful. I think so. Yeah. And it's actually like, we wrote that in the book, like you don't have to have friends, like this is up to you. Right. But, and we went back and forth about that. Like, do we put that in the book thing? Because there is evidence to show that having friends does contribute to positive mental health and even physical health and, and, you know, positive things over the lifespan. Um, but we wanted to send that message of empowerment that this is up to you. This isn't somebody imposing on you what you need in terms of friendships. This is about you figuring out what works for you. And I think that doing all of those things like gymnastics and sports and art, that is great, right? Because we know that friendships are often founded on these common interests and um, and connecting initially, at least in that way, right? Other things are needed to sustain a friendship, but having that commonality at first is really helpful in creating a friendship. Right. So would you say that the primary reader of your book is the teen? Yes. And that was that. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's probably the fourth, I can't remember, I've lost track, the fourth yeah. point that was um, really unique about this book, that the the publishers, the editor, um, their goal, and they had to sometimes re-steer me because again, I'm so used to talking to parents and like giving lectures and talking about research. And they were like, we, when we look on Amazon, we want this to pop out as a book for teens. This is not, I mean, I think caregivers and teachers and parents, you know, will find it helpful. But this, the goal was so that somebody could hold this book and feel like this is my guide. These are my tips. And when I want to access it, I can. And the idea is that they don't have to read it from start to finish. Because I don't know about you, but even as a parent, when people (laughs) recommend books for me, I get all excited and I buy the book and I read like half the first chapter and I'm kind of like, okay, like I get burned out. Um, And so the nice thing about this is they wanted it to be like, if you need to flip to chapter five, to look at, you know, how to apologize to a friend, then you can do that without having read the whole book all the way through. Sort of like a choose your own adventure, but (laughs) you know, whatever applies in the moment. I mean, it's so important, you know, social skills are not this step-by-step, you can't really follow a task analysis. You can't do step one, check, step two, check. Sometimes you're going to have to jump to the apology section to your point and say, oops, I messed up. I'm really sorry. It won't happen again. And then you go back to wherever you were and and 
being able to flip back and forth, I think is so valuable because all the, the relationships are so fluid and things come up mm -hmm. and somebody says something that you didn't understand and you took it the wrong way or you didn't get enough sleep or, you right. know, if you didn't eat and it rubbed you the wrong way that day, then like, you're going to have a bigger reaction than maybe on another day. So you've got to be able to go back and forth. It's such a, it's such a dynamic relationship. Exactly. And it's also about meeting the team where they are in their social development, right? So there may be someone who picks this book up and it's helpful to read chapter by chapter because they really feel like they need to build their confidence with those skills. There may be someone else, maybe a young adult, maybe an older teen who, who is like, okay, some of these tips could be helpful. I've already gone through social skills groups. I've, I've done the bulk of this, but um, the emotion part and how that interferes is really helpful. Let me, let me flip to that section. Great. Dr. Sterling, where can we find this book? Where can we find it? Amazon. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's sold in other places, but I think Amazon is probably the easiest one for people to find. Perfect. And where can we learn more about you and your practice and all the research that you're putting out? Um, I have a website, lindsaysterlingphd.com, and I wish I was doing active research, but I, after being a professor at a few different places, most recently at Cal State Long Beach, um, I've really shifted to the clinical world. So um, I love research, and I think I'll probably be affiliated with research at some point again moving forward, but right now it's really focusing on, on clinical work. That's great. Well, you know, as another clinician, we're thankful to have you here and doing all the work that you're doing. This is such a such a needed part of ongoing intervention for families and for teens. And, and it's nice to see that more people are focusing on this demographic. Thank you. And thank you guys for giving the opportunity for so many different people to provide information on all of these different topics. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sterling. For me, uh, there were a few things that really stood out. And one was uh, some of the ages that she mentioned as she's starting to in identify individuals with anxiety and depression. She mentioned anxiety is coming up for individuals as early as seven and eight years old. And depression, she's starting to see in some boys as young as 12 years old. I think that's something particularly for us to be paying attention to, the mental health aspect that goes along with just being a teen in general. Uh, it seems to me that those ages are getting younger and younger every time we revisit this conversation. And so just for parents out there, I encourage you to be paying attention to your sons and daughters as they're getting into these age ranges. We also talked a bit about the mental health aspect of, of social skills and being socially accepted. And man, I can think of times as she was talking, I can think of times for myself that I've tried to do everything right and it hasn't worked. And so I think that's just something that goes on for everybody. And so her book is really a, a good way for, for teens to kind of find their path and find their, their way to, to get their social network. Um, afterwards, we had a really great ongoing conversation. Um, we were able to keep going off air for a little bit and we kind of stumbled into a conversation about dating and about job interviews and sort of the connection between the two. Uh, we'll work to get that conversation uh, recorded and on air at some point for everyone. Just thought it was a really interesting thing that came up afterwards and, and I don't want to just give it a minute or two. I think that that those topics deserve their own uh, episode. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback for us, feel free to send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And feel free to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thank you all. Be safe, stay healthy. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.